Well, as I mentioned earlier today, we're kicking off a new sermon series in the book of James, and the sermon series is called A Faith That Works. And now, if you're familiar with the book of James, then you'll know that James is a book that's full of a lot of great Christian wisdom, full of a lot of deep insights. It has a lot of um, lines and verses that maybe you've committed to memory or maybe you'd like to commit to memory. But in the midst of all of that, James is a book of the Bible that oftentimes gets overlooked. It gets overlooked because when we begin reading the Bible or somebody says, where should I start? Usually we start with the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we read those writings. Or we start with Paul, and we read Paul's letters. And so sometimes James kind of gets left in the back of the Bible, and we kind of ignore it. And if James were alive today, I don't think he'd be that surprised that he gets overlooked or that his letter does. I think he'd probably shrug his shoulders and say, I'm used to it. Because if you didn't realize this, James is the younger brother of Jesus. And now, can you imagine being the younger brother of Jesus? Just try to picture that for a minute in the midst of your family's dynamics. I mean, every year when birthdays came around and Jesus' birthday came about, you know, Mary, Joseph, and Elizabeth, they probably talked with each other and they celebrated and they talked about all the miracles and the star and the angels. And then when James' birthday came around, you know, they're all scrambling, looking for candles, acting like they didn't forget his birthday. But once again, he's kind of left behind. Or imagine you're, you're in your family, Jesus is your brother, Mary's your mother. You're at a wedding, say it's in Cana of Galilee. They run out of wine. So your mom comes up to you and she's like, James, they just ran out of wine. So James is like, okay, what do you want me to do about it, mom? Then she goes to Jesus and she says to him, hey, Jesus, we just ran out of wine. And he says, okay. Then he turns over 100 gallons of water into wine, right? That's the kind of life that James grew up with. Or just think about when he finally left home or when Jesus left home. When Jesus grew up and finally left home, To make something of himself, he began preaching to thousands of people. He began to heal people. He began to feed people. And then when James finally left home, he probably went to go raise crops or go be a fisherman or something, right? I mean, James was probably used to living in the shadow of Jesus. And so it makes sense in John's gospel when he tells us that Jesus' brothers weren't believers during his public ministry. He says it. His brothers weren't believers. And tradition has it that James wasn't really a believer in Jesus until after the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to him in a resurrected body. And when Jesus appeared to him, then he began to believe, and his faith transformed him from the inside out, and he began sharing the good news with all people everywhere. And James quickly became one of the leaders in the early church. He became the bishop, the overseer of the church in Jerusalem. He helped oversee some of the first contentious debates in Christianity. And he also wrote this letter that we still have, a letter that's helped transform the lives of thousands of people all around the world. And when we study this letter today, and in these next few weeks, what I think we're going to find is that this letter is a real letter. It's a real letter with real wisdom written to real Christians who are struggling in the real world. And in this letter, James is going to challenge us to discover and to have a faith that works. Not a faith that's just sentimental or a faith that was handed down to us or a faith that's irrelevant. He's going to challenge us to have a faith that makes a difference in our lives and in the lives of others 
around the world. And so I'm excited to be opening this up the morning. Um, I mean, I, we don't even need a sermon after Wayne, right? Like, right? Wow. You summarized the gospel so beautifully. Um, but we're going to continue in James chapter 1 after James addresses these churches. And he says, look, when you're facing trials, stay strong, stay steadfast. Then he continues. And we're going to pick up this morning in verse 19. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to open it up. James chapter 1, verse 19. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have some at the Welcome Center. You can grab one on the way out or on your way into worship next time. And James, verse 19, goes like this. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. And don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet don't keep a tight rein on their tongue deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. A lot of you here know that I'm a younger brother. And as a younger brother, I kind of get where James was coming from during that season of his life when he didn't want to believe in Jesus. Because sometimes when you're a younger sibling, you do stuff just to be different from your brothers or sisters. Or you, you, you want to go on your own path. Sometimes you do stuff just to spite your siblings. Can I get an amen? Amen? Any younger siblings in here? You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. So when I was growing up, my brothers, I had two older brothers, Will and Jamie. They both played the trumpet, and they were really good at it. So you know what I did? I did not play the trumpet. Instead, I played the French horn, and I kind of went on my own path. My older brothers, I spent many hours with them at the baseball fields over in Rockdale County, many summer nights out there. And so when I finally got old enough to join the Little Leagues, you know what I did? No, I didn't, I didn't play baseball. Yeah, I played soccer. I went on my own path. So then when my other brother, Will, when he finally joined 4-H and he began getting involved in these public speaking competitions, all that stuff, you know what I did? I didn't get involved in the public speaking part of 4-H. Instead, I joined the cooking competitions in 4-H. <laughs> and so now, this is before Chopped. This is before Iron Chef. This is before the Great British Baking Show. This is before all of that kind of stuff. But I want you to put yourself into my situation, these cooking competitions. We had little kitchen pods all over a big room with our own stove, our own oven, our own sink, all of that kind of stuff. And we were put in very stressful environments because there were judges who were walking around who were grading us on all aspects of our cooking. They were grading us on the cleanliness of our space, on the texture of our food, on the taste, on the processes we were doing. And it was all in a timed, controlled environment. So it was very stressful. And I competed in two different categories. I competed in the homemade pizza category and in the bran muffin category. <laughs> Next week, I'm competing in the chili contest. 
So I need you to join because if I win, that's going to be awkward for the church. Um, but I was in the, all those competitions, and it was a high-stress environment as you're cooking. And I learned a lot of different things through my time in 4-H in my cooking competitions. One, I learned how to properly crack an egg. I learned how to get the perfect crown on a muffin. You know what I'm talking about, the crown? And I learned also, you know, how to, to properly do things in order, how to make a perfect pizza crust, all that kind of stuff. And most of that stuff, Emily can tell you, I've forgotten now, and I don't even do much cooking anymore. But there's one thing I do remember from these cooking competitions, and that is that the right ingredients matter. And I'll never forget standing next to my brand muffins as I looked around the room as other people are standing next to their brand muffins, seeing people crying because they had forgotten key ingredients. And they knew that their muffins might as well be thrown in the trash because the right ingredients matter. And James... When he eventually came to faith in Jesus Christ, he understood this too. He understood that when it comes to faith, the right ingredients matter. That if we just have a faith that has this or has that but doesn't have this, then it's going to be irrelevant, it's going to be insufficient, it might be entertaining, but ultimately it's going to be worthless. He says at one point, basically it's going to be garbage. But in his letter, thankfully, James outlines what these ingredients are. These ingredients are these aspects of faith that each of us need to have if we're going to have a real faith, a faith that works and makes a difference in the world. And so James, he starts by saying this. He starts by saying if we're going to have a real faith, a faith that works, we need to have a faith that engages our head. We need to have a faith that affects the ways we think, a faith that affects the ways we see in this world, a faith that affects how we listen, and a faith that affects how we speak. We need to have a faith that engages our head. In James chapter 1, verse 19, he says this, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. I want, I want us to read this out together. We all read this with me? My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. It's very countercultural back then, and it's very countercultural today because what do we do? We do the opposite. We're quick to speak and we're slow to listen. But James says we need to do the opposite. We need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And he encourages us we need to be quick to listen. We need to be quick to listen to the Word of God. We need to have it. We need to read it. We need to receive it into our minds. As Paul says, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We need to let it seep into the ways that we think and we see in this world. But we don't need to just listen to the Word of God. We also need to listen to our neighbors and to those around us. Listen for their needs, for the ways that they're hurting, for the ways that we can help them out. We need to be quick to listen and we need to be slow to speak. And this is good wisdom because a lot of times when we speak quickly and we speak rapidly, we want to take our words back, but you can't take words back. And a lot of times when we speak quickly, we speak words that do harm to other people, words that hurt other people, words we often say that do damage to other people's faith, that ultimately might damage our own faith. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but we live in a very noisy world 
and the world is always asking us to add to the noise. So if you have a smartphone, you can do this right now. I can show you. If you have a smartphone and you have the Facebook app, I invite you to open it up right now. Click on your Facebook app. And if you go to the top of your Facebook app, you will find a question. And the question, every time you log on to your Facebook app or log on to Facebook on your computer, the question at the top, there's a big blank box, and what does it say? What's on your mind? Every time you get on Facebook, Facebook is saying, hey, speak quickly. Go ahead and post. Speak to the world. Tell everybody what you're thinking. Or you get on Twitter, and Twitter asks a different question. Twitter says to you, hey, what's happening? And every time you log on and saying, hey, speak to the world, speak quickly, broadcast everything you're thinking, or maybe you don't do social media, maybe you're old school and you listen to the radio. Maybe you listen to AM radio. That'll get you quick to anger, won't it? Yeah, people are calling in and they're getting angry and they're yelling and they're fighting, right? It's like, you're, you know, everybody's saying, hey, call in and tell us your opinion. Maybe you listen to the FM radio morning shows like I do. And then you listen to those, and, and people are there saying, hey, call in and give your opinion on all of these salacious things that are happening. And so it's like, hey, call in the radio station and tell this mom how to raise her kids and why she's a bad mom for doing what she does, right? We're always being invited to speak quickly, to give our opinion, and rarely in our culture are we asked to listen or asked to slow down before we speak. And now James isn't saying that there's not a time to speak up and to speak out. Of course there is. We're called to do that as Christians, especially in the face of the injustices that are around us in this world today. He's not saying don't do that, but he's saying before you speak, take time to listen. Listen to the word of God. Listen to other people. Reflect and then speak. And I'll never forget a few years ago, I was at a conference for pastors. And pastors, especially like me, we have to take this wisdom to heart because a lot of times people are coming up to us and they're saying, hey, what do you think about this issue? What do you think about that? Every week I get up here and I speak for 30 minutes and it's easy to be speaking and to not be listening. But I was at this conference and it was full of pastors and it was on a Thursday and so some pastors are there and they're typing up their notes for their sermons that next weekend. Some pastors are there, they're tweeting out all the quotes from the leadership conference and, or they're posting on Facebook. Everybody's, you know, ready to speak because that's what they're used to, pastors. And I'll never forget this one speaker. He got up and he said, you know what? The best thing some of you can do for the kingdom of God is, is to keep your mouth shut. And silence swept over the room. And it swept over the room because we were all convicted. We were all convicted that we had been slow to listen. We had been quick to speak. And because we were all so quick to speak, we had failed to take time to listen to God and to listen to others around us. And James is saying the same thing to us today. He's saying, look, real faith, a faith that works, has to engage and affect your head. And it should lead to a renewal of your mind. It should lead you to be quick to listen and slow to speak. It should affect everything up here.
But he doesn't stop there. He, he continues on and he says, look, if a faith just affects and engages your head, that's not enough. He says, you have to keep going. You have to add to it. He said, a real faith also engages and affects the heart. It has to move from the head to the heart. And in verse 21 and verse 27, he says this, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And here James is acknowledging the reality that his brother Jesus also taught. Jesus in Matthew says this, Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. And so James and Jesus are saying, out of the heart comes those things, so we need a renewal of the heart. We need the word of God and the spirit of God to come into our hearts and to transform our hearts from the inside out. And I love that James says here, to humbly accept the word planted in you. I love that he uses this kind of agrarian metaphor here. Because once again in 4-H, we learned about plants too, right? Any 4-H people in here? Wow! You know, we're kind of country out here, aren't we, a little bit? Yeah, some of y'all are real country. So in 4-H, you learn about plants. Learn about plants, we learned about them. And one of the things you learn about plants is that if you have a bad weed and a good plant sharing space... Ultimately, they both can't be successful because they're both competing for the same resources. They're competing for moisture. They're competing for sunlight. They're competing for nutrients. They're competing for space. You can't have both of them live together and be successful. And so what James is telling us here is that in our hearts, we need to get rid of the moral filth, the weeds, all of those bad things. We need to get rid of them. How do we do that? Well, one is you pull them up by the root. And so when you're starting to have those angry thoughts or negative thoughts or, or, or impure thoughts that are going to ultimately lead to impure or unnecessary actions, you have to nip it in the bud. Stop the thought right then and there. And maybe you also need to prevent future weeds from being planted in you. And so you might need to limit what you're watching on television, limit to what you're listening to. You might have to try to create a more pure environment for yourself. But that's just part of it. Getting rid of the weeds is just part of it. At the same time, you also have to cultivate the good in you. You have to cultivate that, that seed of God, that word of God, and that spirit of God in you. And you do that by engaging in the studying of God's word. You do that by engaging in prayer, by, by spending time worshiping with other people. Giving God praise and honor, spending time in Christian community. That's what happens when you feed that in you. And then it grows. And as it grows, James says, it transforms us. Ultimately, it has the power to save us. In the Greek, that means make us whole. We have to let our faith engage our hearts and affect our hearts, but James, he, he doesn't stop there. He continues. He says, if it affects your head and it affects your heart, it's still not enough. The recipe is still missing a key element. And so he pushes and he says, a real faith also has to affect your hands and how you live every single day in this world. 
And here we come to some of the most famous verses in the book of James. Some in James chapter 1, some in James chapter 2. And we find this, James saying it very bluntly. Don't merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I love it that he just says it. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. It's dead. And then in chapter 1, he goes on to give this interesting illustration about a mirror. And basically he says, look, if you have a faith that's engaged your head and your heart but not your hands, basically what's happening is it's like looking into a mirror seeing that you're having a terrible hair day because it's rainy outside, seeing that your face is covered in soot and dirt, it's like looking and noticing all of that and then going out into the world and forgetting all about it and doing nothing about it. He says the mirror and looking in it is then pointless. You might as well not have done it. He's saying here, look, if we are engaged with our faith in our heads and our hearts but not our hands, it doesn't matter. It's dead. The recipe is dead on arrival. It's rubbish. He says, look, we have to not just think and believe the right things, feel and experience the right things. We also have to live out our faith with our hands every single day in concrete ways. And Tom Rayner, who's a a pastor, he has a book called Simple Church. And in this book, he writes about how every year over 600,000 Americans have heart bypass surgery. And he says, you know, when you're going through heart bypass surgery, they tell you, the doctors do, that you're going to have to make lasting changes. You're going to have to change your diet. You're going to have to start to exercise. You're going to have to, you know, stop smoking, limit your drinking, all that kind of stuff. The doctors say all of that to people. And you would think that people who had had that experience in their hearts and people who were equipped with the knowledge that they need to change or possibly die, you think that they would begin living that out and begin doing it. But Rayner cites study after study which reveal that 90% of people who have heart bypass surgery two years later have made no changes in their lives. He says that that experience in the heart and that knowledge in the head, it's not enough. And James is saying it's not enough for us either. Our faith has to affect our head, our heart, and our hands. And when it does, then it's a powerful thing that can't be stopped. Then it's a faith that works in powerful ways in this world. And James, he's not going to let us off the hook. And so he continues to push, and he gets really specific. And he says this as he continues in chapter, um, this is chapter 1, but it says chapter 2. He says this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. He gets specific because he's saying, look, Theoretical faith doesn't matter. It needs to be lived in concrete ways. A real faith is a faith that cares for those who can't always care for themselves. It makes a difference. 
And James, when he was growing up and he saw Jesus doing all of this great stuff, you know, for a while he didn't, he didn't really believe it. But I bet when he was writing this letter and he was talking about making our faith active, I bet he was thinking about what Jesus did with his hands every day. As Jesus healed people, as Jesus fed people, as Jesus blessed people, as Jesus opened up his arms and loved people. And as James is writing about making our faith active, I think he was thinking that we should be doing with our hands the same things that Jesus did with his hands. And I'll close with this. I hope you'll read James in your devotional, devotional time, in your, in your private study time. It's a very short book. You can read it in one sitting. And if you want to dive in deeper, you can come on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock. We have um, opportunity for Bible study here. But as you're reading it, I don't want you to miss this, that this letter originally, it wasn't written to be read by individual Christians like you and I. Originally, it would have been read aloud in gatherings like this one, in church gatherings. It was originally written to communities of people. And so what James is saying today is he's saying to us, Harvest Point, our faith should affect how we think and make decisions as a church. Our faith should affect how we listen and engage our neighbors around us. Our faith should affect how we speak and communicate as a church. Our faith should affect the heart of our church, how we relate to one another, how we relate to our neighbors, and how we relate to God. And ultimately, our faith should affect every single activity that we have. Everything we do as a church. And if James were here today, I think he would say to Harvest Point, Harvest Point, great job. Last week when you went out and put your faith into action all around the community, that was awesome. I think he'd be cheering right now. And he would look over here and see all of these diapers that are going to be sent to the United Methodist Children's Home to babies who can't help themselves. I think he would say, that's awesome. And then I think finally he would say to us as a church, keep it up. Keep going. Keep serving. Keep making your faith active in love. Keep letting the Word of God and the Spirit of God transform you from the inside out. So this morning, let's pray that God would make it so. God, we come before you this morning as a church and we pray for the kind of faith that James talks about. A faith that affects all that we are and all that we have. A faith that engages our heads and our hearts and our hands. And so God, during this series and during the rest of this year as a church, we pray that you would help us to listen. That you would help us to be slow to speak. God, we pray that you would transform our hearts and our lives together. And God, we pray that we would take advantage of every opportunity we have to serve those around us and to make our faith active in love in concrete ways. We thank you and we praise you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing?